This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Kwame Anthony Appiah. He is Lawrence S. Rockefeller, University Professor of Philosophy at Princeton University. I spoke with him on February 8, 2011, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in a private recording studio in Princeton, New Jersey. This interview is included in our show, Sidling Up to Difference. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Professor Appiah, are you still there? Yes, yeah, I'm here. Great, Krista's here and uh, can join us. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, good. Thanks for doing this. It's a pleasure. Um, I've been reading you for years and really I knew that a moment would come when I would really want to have you on the show, so I'm, I'm glad we can do this. Do you have any questions of me before we start? No, no. Uh, this is not. This is recorded, right? It's recorded, and uh, yes. yes, and <clears throat> it, edited. It will be edited and produced. Although we have a pretty sizable number of people who also download the unedited conversations. So okay, okay. <laughs> one of those great things that technology makes possible. Great. Yeah. Kristen, Nancy's just getting you some water, and um, we'll be ready to go. Okay. Um, do you need sound checks? Do you need- yeah. Professor Appy, if you could just uh, tell me about your making your way to the studio. Um, I walked. (laughs) (laughs) I walked from my office, which is just up the hill. It's about, uh, I think, a three-minute walk. I think that means it's not 20 below zero today in Princeton as it is in Minnesota. No, no. We're actually – we're above freezing. Oh, good. Congratulations. So there's there's melting snow everywhere. Yeah. What's the temperature where you are? Well, it's I think the actual air temperature is below zero, but there's some frightening wind chill, so it's <laughs> in the minus teens, I think. It's pretty bad. Are you serious? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good lord. It creates hardy hardy individuals. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, <clears throat> I have. Um, I have three Norwegian nephews, and they are remarkably relaxed mm-hmm. about snow oh, yeah. and ice and wind. Mm-hmm. That's what my children are like. <laughs> I didn't grow up here, but they're getting that. All right, we're ready. Shall we go? Okay, great. Um, so, you know, the the particular occasion that made me really, really want to have this conversation with you, I mean, I want to talk about the sweep of your work and your ideas, but I'm... I've been watching uh, in recent months, uh, especially after Tucson, um, you know, the, 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 the reemergence or the emergence in American public and political life of phrases like civility and moral imagination, social healing. Um, and I think that that does reflect, a, I, I, I'm aware that reflects longings that are out there, but people don't know how to do these things. <laughs> and if mm-hmm. they remain mere words, then it's not very useful to us. So... Um, so it's it's that that's the context in which I want to talk about what you know, um, but I'd like to start just with a little bit about uh, the background of your life, which is so interesting. Um, I know that your your parents came from leading families in Britain and what we now know as Ghana, which was the Gold Coast at that time. I read that it was perhaps the first interracial society wedding in Britain, but I suppose <laughs> the American cultural reference is this right? Is that uh, your parents' marriage may have been one of the inspirations for uh, the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yes, apparently that's so. I, I only learned that uh, after my mother died from um, 
an obituary in the New York Times. Where uh, maybe I read me- that too, or a British obituary. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but somebody mentioned it, mm-hmm. and uh, and then they they gave specifics of how how it had happened. There were, in fact. Two very significant interracial marriages in the early 50s in Britain. One was my parents and the other, which actually happened a bit before it, wasn't a society wedding exactly because one of the parties wasn't a member of British society, but uh, namely the wedding between Saretsi Karma, who was going to go on to be president of Botswana, hmm. and his English wife, uh, Ruth. And um, in fact, their son is now the president of Botswana. Oh. So, um, But R- Ruth was... Um, uh, I didn't know her very well. I did know her a bit because we went to Botswana a a while ago. But um, but she was, as it were, not from a from the same sort of family as my mother. So it didn't it didn't surface as a society wedding, but it did surface as a big deal because 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 he was paramount chief of the Mamanguato and because they were a British protectorate. Um, the British government thought that they had the right to tell him who he could marry. <laughs> so, oh, I see. So it wasn't even just that it was interracial, but there was that dynamic. No, and he um, <laughs> and the South Africans next door didn't want. Uh, didn't, you know, they were busily right. enjoying apartheid, and they didn't really want the, the paramount chief of the largest ethnic group in a neighbouring country to be married to an English woman. So, huh. so that marriage was a big political kerfuffle, and then and then my parents because my father wasn't um, under the protection of the British monarchy, <laughs> right. the British government. He was allowed to, he and my mother were allowed to marry whoever they chose and they chose each other. I mean, as a background to to your work on how moral change happens, it's fascinating that in, in, in some sense you and your family lived a profound shift in cultural perception and mores, something that was the subject of real condemnation um, mm-hmm. that, that changed within a generation, really. It did. And I think, you know, if you live within a change like that, it can often seem less puzzling to you than it does to all the people around you. So I don't think my sisters and I were terribly aware as we were growing up that anyone had any kind of principled objection to to our existence. And I know that uh, when we went as children to visit my mother's mother in England, my grandmother, my English grandmother, the press would occasionally, when we sort of stepped off the plane, the newspapers would always say, so you're leaving him, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Really? And she would say, no, I've just come to see my mother with with her grandchildren. Um, I think there was a kind of assumption that it couldn't possibly work, or at least that it would be a better story if it didn't work. So, mm-hmm. so the fact that they, um, they you know, lived together and, and until my father died, and then my mother stayed in Ghana until she died, I think that perhaps would have surprised some of the people who were against it at the start. But mm-hmm. they never seemed to have had any doubt that it was the right thing to do. And as I, I, I do think that a significant part of that had to do both with the fact that they, their own families were supportive on both sides mm-hmm. uh, and with the fact that they were both devout Christians. And I think that, that the sense that um, they both had was that uh, you couldn't possibly as a Christian be opposed to uh, interracial marriage and that therefore it couldn't possibly be wrong was very strong. It's very and, interesting. And, and, mm-hmm. and very sustaining for them, I think, the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, because if people, you know, when people criticize something you do and if, if there's enough of them, you can come to wonder whether they're right. But I don't think they ever had any doubt uh, about the rightness of what they were doing. 
And you were also raised Christian between living between Ghana and the UK, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, 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 so my parents, uh, I, I like to joke that uh, the, my, I come from a mixed, uh, mixed background family because my father was a Methodist and my mother was an Episcopalian. But, uh, <laughs> which which in, those, in those days was not so was, far different from being an interracial couple. <laughs> no, it was, it, was, it was a big deal. And in yeah. fact, um, we went to separate churches as children. Mm. That is, I mean, I was baptized in my father's church, but we, we went to Sunday school with my mother at a different church uh, around the corner. And um, so, yeah, we were definitely raised in a Christian family. My parents were both very uh, active in that. They were both elders of their respective churches, as was my, as was my paternal grandfather. He was an elder in, my, in the Methodist Church of Kumasi. Actually, my mother's father was, the fir- I believe, the first layman to preach from the pulpit of St. Paul's Cathedral because he was a very devout oh. Anglican and he, he was involved in in the um, Anglican Church. So I think it was not just my parents, but our whole families were Christian families. And as I say, I think that was part of what made this uh, so easy. It was their sense that um, this was a, a, a Christian undertaking, an undertaking perfectly consistent with their Christianity. And how did you gravitate towards philosophy when you were at Cambridge? Um well, I, you know, you can tell the story in various ways. At the time, I, uh, I so I went to university to be a medical student in mm. England. You have to you have to decide you want to be a doctor before you go to your undergraduate degree. So I was admitted to Cambridge University in the in a program in medical sciences, uh, and I had always thought I was going to be a doctor from very young, um, because I think because I loved my own doctor when I was a child. Mm. Um, but I. Uh, I think I can fairly say that I absolutely hated it. Um, I I found it really, really boring. Um, The the only slightly interesting part of it was biochemistry. But but in physiology and anatomy, you were working with scientists who were studying things that had been known for a very long time. And scientists aren't interested in things that have been known for a very long time. Scientists are interested in what's, you know, what they're learning now. Right. And it's very hard to be interesting as a teacher of anatomy if what you're teaching was already known to Vesalius 600 years ago. Mm. So, so I think it was hard to, for me to, you know, I, I'm, I guess I have attention deficit disorder or something. I mean, I, I need to be stimulated intellectually and I found it a bit stultifying. But also I had been reading philosophy by the time I got to university for three or four years, both on my own and with friends. And that, it just struck me that that was what was really interesting to me. And so I went to my college and I said, I know you, you let me in to do medicine, but I'm more interested in philosophy. Hmm. And they said, if you pass the first year medical exams, you can change your field. You can become a philosopher. And um, so I scraped through the first year, (laughs) almost being thrown out for being uh, incompetent and changed to philosophy, which I immediately loved. I I loved um, the sort of challenge of sitting down with all kinds of questions, whether they were in ethics or metaphysics or epistemology, and st- struggling to think them through uh, by reading what other people had written about them and by uh, focusing on them deep into the night uh, myself. So mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of came home to philosophy. And I think it had, you know, if you, if you ask why, why this is sort of connected with the religion thing, because the reason I started reading philosophy in the first place was because as a young evangelical teenager, I got interested both in theology and philosophy because 
you know, if you're a serious young person. Mm, that's what it's about. That's what, that's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and I only stuck, I sort of stuck with the medicine because I, it was um, because out of momentum. I mean, I had been going in that direction for so long that it took me a while to realize that it wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I'm glad my parents were incredibly, you know, they just said, well, you know, do what you have to do what you have to do. So get on with it. Um, if you don't want to be a doctor, you better be something else. Hmm. I, I don't know if you know that we've changed, that this program's been around for seven years and we've just uh, changed the name. This is just an aside. But it, it was originally called Speaking of Faith. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, we've recently changed the name to On Being. And it's it's partly mm-hmm. as a recognition that what we're tracing when we, you know, we say that we trace meaning religion, ethics, and ideas, there is this core animating question of what it means mm-hmm. to be human and that that, in fact, is there in the religious enterprise, although it's not restricted to it. So, Right. Yeah. No, I think that that was the um, – at the heart of most of what I've done in philosophy in the last decade or more, mm-hmm. really, has been a, a preoccupation with with that central question in ethics, which is – you know, what is it for a human life to go well? What is it for one to have a life of significance? Uh, what is it to have the kind of life that you can look back on at the end and say that was that was a life worth living, a life well lived? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, my my kind of uh, um, Christmas cracker version of my philosophy—the thing that I would put on a piece of paper inside a Christmas cracker if I had to—is is that everything's very complicated. <laughs> Everything, everything's more complicated than you, than you thought at first. And it turns out that when you're trying to think about what it is to lead a life of significance, what it, leads, what it is for human life to go well, um, many, many things are relevant. And in that sense, and in that sense, it's a very complicated project. And so you're not going to run out of subjects. surprising, unexpected, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I think almost anything that... Someone says to you, you know, it's, it could be a kind of parlor game. Someone could say to you, "So here's something that I'm going to, that, that you know, that can't have anything to do with the meaning of human life, and and your task <laughs> is to explain why it does." Yeah. So, so with this perspective of yours, this uh, interest of yours, um, and also the work you've done in recent years with the notions of cosmopolitanism and honor, um, mm-hmm. I kind of want to ask a, a big, wide open question here about. There's been a lot of divisiveness and rancor in American life, certainly for the last decade. But, you know, I think in our political life, it's waxed and waned over the last 10 years. And then in the la- in, in, in recent months, um, I, we have some new divisions. We have some new, uh, new p- players, you know, and which create new divides. We have Tea Party on one side, right, and the liberal elites mm-hmm. on the other. I mean, these aren't new, but the, the categories have shifted a bit. And it, I think it feels to many people, I'm not sure this is true, but it feels like the rancor has gotten worse. So I just mm-hmm. wonder, how have you, when you look at these kinds of hostilities and tensions in U.S. culture, and in terms of how we navigate difference or fail to, for example, you mm-hmm. know, what do you see in terms of the causes of gridlock, what's gone wrong, or also where do you see sources of different possibilities? Start to talk to me about that. Well, I, I think that I mean the first thing I want to do is sort of confess that I, you know, um, like everybody else, I think who cares about what happens in our society and follows what happens in societies, I get pretty cross myself sometimes. Mm-hmm. I get I get mad at people. Um, I try very hard not to, um, you know, turn that 
anger into immediately uh, abusing them or uh, sending out an angry email declaring them to be the spawn of the devil. But uh, because, I, <laughs> because it isn't helpful. Uh, <laughs> even, but, if even if you think that might be true. <laughs> even, if, even if you think about it, and even, right. if, and even if it makes you feel terrific for a moment. I think right. that, you know, so it's these are, I'm sure other people have suggested this to you, but I mean, one of the things that's changed is that um, more people can uh, ha- can express themselves without any editing right. than bef- than ever before in right. human history, um, and not just with that. Now, one thing an editor does is um, actually mean that there's a distance in time between your f- the first thing you say yes. and when it goes out. Yeah, you know, and, that's a really and, simple but very and, significant observation, I well, think. Well, and it is, it's a large part of the problem. Everybody who, tells, who talks about, you know, internet etiquette and flaming and all that says, if you could, says basically the equivalent of what my, actually my grandmother used to say to me when I was about to send off an angry letter was she'd say, why don't you put that under your pillow overnight and mm. see, see how you feel in the morning? And the trouble is that uh, the, 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 the send button doesn't come with a, a 24-hour delay uh, built into it. So, so we have I all this raw is, emotion flying around. Yes. Mm-hmm. Also, we have raw emotion without one of the things that normally constrains its expression, which is the presence of the other person. It's, right. harder, it's harder to use the kind of language that people routinely use on the web to someone's face, even a stranger, um, but especially someone you know, uh, if they're sort of physically present. We, we get feedback from their face and and face-to-face encounters are better on the whole just because of that. So we've got this form of encounter that is somewhat anonymous. We don't get the feedback and completely unedited and with no time lag. And, you know, it's not surprising that uh, that produces a lot of mess. I mean, I, I was once asked a few years ago to join in on a, on a sort of blog and contribute, and the, I said some, I wrote something, and, and the first responses were so unpleasant that I decided I wasn't made for the web. Was that the left-to-right <laughs> blog? Yes, that was right. And I said, well, I noticed and, that. I saw that you'd been part of it, but it looked like it just didn't live very no, long. No, I did, I, did, I did one thing mm-hmm. and the main, the main response was a kind of completely, I yeah. thought, uh, sort of dishonest uh, sort of failure to, to grasp the relatively straightforward thing I was trying to say. <laughs> now, now, I'm... Uh, so I think uh, we have to... You know, it takes a long time to learn how to manage new human technologies. Mm-hmm. And, w- and we're just ba- taking baby steps. So I, I assume that we'll get better at this. And, and some of the things in the, the technology itself will help. Um, once you move from email to email to Skype, you get back the human face. Mm. You get back the shocked look in the eyes of the other person right. when, you abu- when you abuse them and, and so on. So I think uh, some of it will, will sort of solve itself in those ways. Um, but there's another set of things going on. Again, this is, I'm, none of this is original to me, that, um, which is a kind of um, uh, the, 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 the sort of the consumer choice dimension of the new technologies, which we're inclined to celebrate, uh, does mean that it's hard to have a public square. What you get is a million private squares. Mm, mm -hmm. And 
if you're going to run a republic together of 300 million people, you've got to have somewhere where, you know, you're having a kind of general conversation that can be attended to by everybody and where you can try to agree on what the basic parameters are of the things that you agree about, the thing, you know, the, is is the planet's average temperature going up or not? And also right. the things that you disagree about, um, you know, is it or is it not okay to uh, terminate uh, pregnancies in the first trimester? And But if you have only conversations among the people who think that it isn't okay and then other conversations among people who think it is okay, uh, you're just going to get a permanent uh, blockage. And um, now, you know, we're, we're I, I feel... I'm not – again, I want to begin by confessing that, you know, I don't spend an awful lot of my time trying to seek out people. Who are different uh, from you to have Who a are different from me <laughs> yeah. uh, on these topics. I don't really mm-hmm. want to hang out with, with people mm-hmm. who who are homophobic, for example. But um, one of the most powerful reasons why America is less homophobic than it was when I came to it nearly 30 years ago – is because uh, lots of gay people came out and started talking to people who weren't very comfortable around gay people. And suddenly those people discovered that you could be comfortable around gay people. Mm -hmm. And then they got angry that other people were not being nice to them. So, um, you know, there is a difficulty, I think, which is that... um, uh, how do we create places where people who disagree about these things, which are important disagreements, yes. uh, can? And my sort of the, the sort of the core thought of my cosmopolitanism book is that um, you have to come together in what I call using the I use the metaphor of conversation, and the point about conversation is. Yes. That it doesn't have a point. But you also you're uh, using the word conversation as something larger than words that pass between two people. I mean, exactly. D- d- define uh, conversation first of all. Well, well, those sort of you know you're sitting down with a friend in a bar and you're chatting, and it's about, you know, this week it'll be about the Super Bowl or it'll be about Egypt. Um, you're not talking to your friend about the Super Bowl because it makes any difference to what happens. The Super Bowl is over. You're not trying to, mm-hmm. you know, you're not changing anything. Um, nor is, you know, I came into this studio with a Steelers cap on, as it happens, <laughs> um, which I confess before the nation. But, um, uh, but uh, I'm not going to have, if I talk to somebody who's a fan of those other guys from Wisconsin, um, I'm not expecting them at the end of the conversation to say, you're right. You know, the Steelers are definitely the team I should follow. They're definitely the better team. The the object of the exercise is to discuss it, talk about it, not to come to some kind of agreement, not to change each other, just to to be together, enjoy Mm -hmm. one another's company. And if you have that background of relationship between individuals and communities that is, in that sense, conversational, then when you have to talk about the, the things that do divide you, you have a, a better platform. Uh, you, you can begin with the assumption that you like and respect each other, even though you don't agree about everything. And you can maybe build on that. Uh, and you can know that at the end of the conversation, it's quite likely that you'll both 
think something pretty close to what you both thought at the start. Yeah. But you may at least have a deeper appreciation for the other person's um, point of view. And that turns out to make it easier to accept the outcome, whether it's the outcome you favor or the outcome the other person favors. People who've been heard uh, and whose position is understood, this is one of the great virtues of democracy when it's working, tend to be more willing to accept an outcome that they wouldn't have chosen because they feel they've had voice, they've participated in the process. Mm. And if you... That, that one of the reasons why those who say that we might have done a better job with abortion if we'd settled it through the legislature rather than through the courts is, I think, because if we'd settled it through legislatures, we'd have had to have kept, as it were, talking to one another. Uh, whereas if, if you declare something to be a constitutional right, that's sort of a conversation stopper. Right. You'd, leg- uh, you'd, decide, you'd, you'd legislate it and then... And then you move on with what has been decided. Right. But not only that, if you say – if you legislate it on the basis of the constitution, Mm -hmm. then it's going to take, you know, two-thirds majority in both houses plus, uh, you know, two-thirds of the legislatures to – in other words, basically it's impossible – to reverse it. And so you've kind of stopped the discussion. Um, now, I, I'm not – I mean, I happen to think that, uh, that, that you know, um, the outcome in Roe v. Wade was the right outcome. But I think we could have gotten there – we might have done better if we'd gotten there in a different way, in a way that gave more hearing at the start to the full variety of positions that there is about this question. You know, as you know, most Americans are sort of in the muddle about abortionism. Yes. The, the, the number of people who are absolutely clear that, um, that uh, you know, abortions up until the, the ninth month are fine mm-hmm. is very small. Mm-hmm. And the number of people who really believe um, that um, killing a, a first, uh, you know, a, a blastocyst of 32 cells is murder is also very small. Right. Uh, and, and most people are sort of think, well, it would be better if there were fewer of them. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't want to go back to backstreet abortions. You know, they have a kind of complicated, messy view. And if, if more of that mess had been, <laughs> which is what a conversation is like, conversation is not about principles and coming to complicated agreements. It's just about hearing all the mess. Uh, if, if more of that mess had been represented, we'd probably we'd have a much messier legislative situation. But we might have more consensus about about um, about the rights that we had. Uh, arrived at in that way. Right. And by the way, this, this is sort of what hap- has happened in, in much of Europe, that they've sort of muddled their way to a, to a situation where most people are kind of happy with, with the, or at least not too unhappy with the outcome. You mean on some of these these moral values issues, yeah. these issues yeah. around sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, constitutionalizing them risks settling them, but in a way that closes off conversation. Right. And you, I mean, you so use, you I, use I, language like conversation and its older meanings about habits of coexistence, association, yes. living together, right? Yes. Well, I, and I think that, you know, if you think about the background of endless conversation with your friends, that is the sort of texture of your relationship with them, it's against that background that you can have friends, you know, no, no group of friends agrees about everything. Right. And some of the things you disagree about are serious, Right. I have friends who are under the mistaken conviction that it was a good thing that the Packers won the Super Bowl, and I have to accept that. <laughs> uh, and this is a serious, it's a serious disagreement. But 
Um, so, and it's it's. But more importantly, I have friends who are Catholics, and I have friends who are um, um, atheists who do seders once a year, and I have right. friends who are Methodists, uh, and I have friends who are Unitarians of the sort that are really, you know, not very believing, and so on. And those are serious differences. But and if they were, if if we if we only came together to talk about theology, we wouldn't have much of a relationship. Mm-hmm. If we only came together to try and settle the things we disagree about, we we wouldn't be getting along. It's the background of sort of endless shared conversation, in which you agree about this, you disagree about that. Some of the things you disagree about are important. Some of the things you agree about are important. Uh, and then when you come to a moment of serious disagreement, you can handle the fact and you can you can, as it were, accept the outcome even if it's not the one you chose. Uh, you would have chosen if it had been up to you. So now that, that's, that's a picture of a kind of successful interpersonal relationship. How right. you turn that into a social practice, yes. uh, especially, that's, I'm not saying that's easy. But one of, one of the things I think that is required is a willingness to feel that it would be good to be in dialogue with fellow citizens of all sorts, and that I, it's not. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I, and I think, I, mean, I think, just going back to a few minutes ago, what you said, I think you're, the way you talked about how technology, which you know is not good or bad in itself, it's a tool, but that in fact the forms we have for even just expressing what we believe, in a way, are taking that that personal dimension away from it. They are, and I, I think also that. Um, or creating, the, 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 as you, you said, know, many many squares rather than a public yeah. square. And they they are the kind of communicational equivalent of um, being permanently fortissimo. Uh, people mm-hmm. are shouting at each other mm-hmm. all the time. The conversation can be quiet and right. murmuring, and <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and kind of you can lower the temperature in a conversation as well as raising it. But how, as I say, I'm not. Uh, these, this is a, so. This is a kind of uh, image of, of 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 a way of of dealing with one another, a way of getting along. That we have to figure out how to turn into a practice that can be generalized to to the whole society. And I, I'm not sure that I am wise enough to figure out exactly how to do that. But I do think that when we find ourselves um, thinking about something like um uh like gay marriage say right um it it's it's helpful i think to feel look i don't want to enter a conversation i don't want to enter a discussion i don't want there to be a discussion in which people are on the one side are uh, you know cursing people on the other side rather than trying to make sense of where the other people are coming from and i i you know i think that if you in, instead of kind of just dismissing people as homophobic uh, or part of the gay agenda. And you say this as a as a gay man, right? I mean, yes, yes, mm-hmm. I do. Yes, I mean, so I'm I'm not, um, you know, I, I I would like to. I mean, I think this that this society has moved incredibly far. On uh, is much much less homophobic than it was, and and one of the good. One of the sort of hopeful signs in all this is that the the proportion of young people 
who can be persuaded to be hostile to gay people is very much smaller than the than the proportion of people in the, in the generations before. So that it's going, I think, in the right direction. Uh, and as I say, I think that that's a model of what's happened there is partly a model of this kind of co- the consequence of cohabitation, the consequence of the fact that that uh, that students I teach today, the people who are arriving in college today, have many of them had gay friends. I mean, the straight ones have had uh, have known gay um, uh, friends, teenagers in, in high school. And um, they may or may not have liked them in particular, but they have the sense that it's just part of the normal range of what's around. Uh, So the idea that these people are particularly horrendous is just not one that you can sell. But that depends upon their having been in kind of rubbing along dialogue with people, not not necessarily agreeing with them, but knowing sort of you know knowing how it seems how the world seems to them, and that's the conversational way of going along. Once you're in that kind of network with um, with gay people or with Muslims you know, to change the case uh, it's just harder to say some of the nasty things that people say about gay people and Muslims. Right. You know, one thing I thought early also as we were speaking is that in, there's a way in which um, the, again, the ways we express these opinions um, it, it's not just that we are that we don't necessarily see other human beings or aren't necessarily interacting with other human beings, but also that difference itself becomes more abstract, right, in in the absence yes. of those relationships. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, you've written a lot about difference as an issue in, in the human yeah. condition. Yeah, I think that the, 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 you're absolutely right that the key change is when you come from thinking of an issue as being about homosexuals and Muslims, and come to think of it as being about, you know, Uncle John and Aunt Mary and cousin Ahmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's not Muslims; it's this particular people now, and um, it sort of gives it a kind of concreteness. Um, sometimes people think that you know the only way to deal with these big differences between religions or, or or around moral questions is to kind of face up to the difference directly. But I think often, as it were, sidling up to it right. uh, is better. And sidling up to it can be done by not, not, by not facing Islam, but facing, you know, Layla and Ahmed and Mohammed and uh, who, with whom you don't talk about religion most of the time. You talk about soccer or you talk about, you know, rock music or whatever it is you, you have in common as an interest. And the thing that binds me across, say, religious boundaries to people on other sides of, of religious boundaries isn't one thing, right? Right. What, what, what binds me to Islam is my Sunni friends and my Shia friends, my Ismaili friends, uh, my cousins who happen to be Muslim and strangers who whom I've come to know whom I, and like who are Muslim. And what I have in common with these very diverse group of Muslims that I know is different in each case. And so that breaks up the sense of them as a kind of monolithic them. Right. And uh, I think this is a point you make also coming out of your own life, your own childhood and your parents, that, that identity, that all of our identities are composed of so many different 
have so many different yes. aspects to them. We, yeah. we, we, we are what we are in our professional lives. We, we are parents. We are children. We are friends. We are lovers. Um, and um, you also, you know, I, I think I, I'm just, you know, as I, as I think about that, I realize that another thing that happens in a lot of these where we've defined our differences in our public life is that we define people as we 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 act as though people are truly defined by that position by one, on that issue, right? So mm-hmm. there's this. I mean, one category that I would like to remove from the conversation of my liberal friends is evangelical Christian, mm. uh, because the the range of views and feelings and experiences that is encompassed by uh, those Americans who think of themselves as born again is incredible. And they're, uh, they're, some of them are, you know, very active, uh, very actively um, pro, pro-gay marriage, some of these people that are called, that, that are, you know, who have been born again. Um, some of them are very active in struggles against capital punishment mm-hmm. uh, out of their religious conviction. So the idea that they're a kind of monolithic Block, and even when you meet someone who, as it were, fits all the stereotypes that uh, liberals often have of evangelical Christians, um, you know, she's also going to be someone who has turns out to have an interest in in a kind of music that you like, or <laughs> uh, or, or to be a, a devout consumer of the same you know trash fiction that you read, or whatever it is. Uh, or like the, or like the same some television program that, that with you or or think with you that the best place you've ever been um you know was the grand canyon so i think um p- people even if people are kind of stereotypically we can liberal, find points of human contact you can find points mm-hmm. of human contact with them and they're you know the the the, the if you need contact it's pr- and you're not an evangelical conservative evangelical Christian, then obviously um, reaching out to conservative evangelical Christians as conservative evangelical Christians isn't a good idea. But but you could reach out to them in lots of other ways. Right. You could re- re- reach out to particular ones in other ways. As I say, you have many things in common. Um, and and once those links are built, if we can build a society where there are these cross links across the identities that are currently dividing us, then, as I say, it will, it will stop being about them and it'll start being about, you know, John and Mary and Leila and Ahmed. And um, that's just psychologically very different. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, America prides itself on a place of diversity and it, it surely is. Although I, 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 I get a feeling that you know, diversity can be many things. It can be racial. It can be ethnic. It can be social. But then, when it comes to these moral issues, there's a feeling that really we should all agree, right? Or that, yes. that kind of difference is is intolerable and has to be overcome. And you know, to do justice to the sweep of your work, um, you know, you you really do describe human flourishing writ large as. As as having difference, uh, difference at its core, not as something that is overcome, but yes. as something that is always there and part of vitality. Yes. So I think that part of the sort of small L in the old-fashioned sense of the word liberal, which has somewhat got lost in our recent conversations, mm-hmm. but part of part of the liberal tradition is the thought that um, 
and I like to say this is the part of the liberal tradition that Jesse Helms would have agreed with. But, uh, <laughs> I'm that, waiting. That, I can't wait to hear what this is. <laughs> well, is that, is that part of what it is for your life to go well is for you to be living by standards that you believe in. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. th- and the reason Jesse Helms could agree with that is because this is essentially the great thought of the Protestant Reformation, yeah. uh, that, it's, that, that the individual conscience matters. And that it's not enough to worry about whether people are doing the right thing. You have to worry about whether they're doing the right thing while believing it's the right thing. And forcing people to do what you think is the right thing when they don't is a kind of violation. And that means that the way you have to deal with people with whom you disagree about what's right and wrong is to try and persuade them. Uh, unless they pose a threat, I mean a threat of harm mm-hmm. uh, to somebody when you, obviously you have to stop people who pose direct threats of harm. But that's also part of the liberal tradition, the thought that we, we, the state is entitled to protect people from harm from other people. But it isn't entitled to enforce a, a view about all these central being questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want a state that tells us what the right answer is to the, to the question what God is like. Uh, we don't want a state that tells us that we have to do some, this or that whether or not we think it's right. We, we want a state that has some you know, respect for our conscience, uh, that thinks that it matters whether people are living by the standards they believe in. And that means that um, it, it, agreement is fine but it matters how you get it. <laughs> and uh, if you can persuade people, if you can get them to come around by showing them why uh, their position is incorrect, that's fine. That's a perfectly respectful way of dealing with someone. But forcing them to do what you think is right without engaging uh, with their sense of what's right and wrong is bad, I think. Uh, as I say, except when it's necessary to prevent direct harm. So that thought, that thought that we, that what are we doing together is we're, we're managing the republic together. We're fellow citizens of a great republic, which we're trying to run together. Um, we have to think of each other, therefore, as entitled to this great responsibility. We have to respect one another. And respecting one another means understanding that people can conscientiously come to a different view. I think if our conversations were richer, we might actually have more consensus than we do about many questions. You do. Yes, I do. But mm-hmm. I, don't think, I don't think we're ever going to come to 100% consensus about the sorts of things that divide us now. And I don't think we need to. What we need to do is to figure out how to live together while disagreeing about mm-hmm, these things. Mm-hmm. And, but I do think that the, the you know, if you had told me when I first came to this country in the early 80s that uh, a majority of people under the age of 25 uh, in, 19, in 2011 would think that uh, in, in, this includes uh, conservative uh, kids uh, under the age of 25 would would think that it's kind of self-evident that uh, gay people who want to ought to be allowed to be married. You'd, I, I would have told you you were out of your tree. I would have mm-hmm. told you were crazy. Right. And yet that's what's happened. I wonder if um, it, it, 
I wonder if there's a tension or if you could talk about the tension between you as a philosopher and you as a human being who, who happens to be gay. And um, uh, so this, this issue of same-sex union, for example, is mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. no abstraction to you. And when you, a little while ago you talked about your extended circles of friendship. There are all kinds of difference. And presumably mm. in that large extended circle of uh, friendship and family, which for you is global, um, there may be people who, um, on a level of principle, uh, don't approve of your sexual orientation or don't don't believe that. Well, that's... Uh, don't have to go way way out. Okay. Uh, I have a, I have I have an even a Pentecostal sister. I can assure you. Oh, that you she do. Doesn't think that that it's okay. Yeah. I so... mean, she loves she she loves me, uh-huh. and she know and she she knows that God loves me. So so she has to think about it against that background but uh but it doesn't follow from that that she has to think it's okay mm-hmm. so how do your you know when sort of the rubber meets the road then in terms of your mm. what how you think about this as a philosopher and 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 uh, you know the ideals you have for our public life then then how is that informed even more and what have you learned through then those kinds of interactions well i think that uh i mean growing up as i did between um, you know post uh, post colonial Ghana and uh, and and Britain, uh, growing up in in a family which on one side had people who slaughtered uh, sheep in order to deal with witchcraft, and on the other side contained uh, you know um, uh, anti religious atheists <laughs> yeah. uh, who would have been very astonished to find that they were r- related by marriage to people who believed in witchcraft. Um, y- what you learn is that, uh, you know, you make up your own mind about these things. I know where I stand on all these questions. But you live perfectly happy with people who have different views about them. I, I don't have the same views as most of the English people that I went to high school with or college with uh, about certain topics, and I don't have the same views as most of the um, Ghanaians that I went to elementary school with on certain topics. But I'm, you know, I'll go to parties with either group, and yeah. and and more importantly, they'll let me in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, people who there's a very beautiful moment in in the English uh, original season. I think it's the second season of Skins. This this controversial. Yes, my thing daughter's about been watching. That. I haven't watched it. Well, well, I haven't seen the American one, and I gather some people think it isn't as good. But in the English one, um, it's a very moving moment when there's there's a young uh, gay English kid, white English kid, and a young Muslim English kid who's of Pakistani origin, and they're best friends. And and the the Pakistani kid who's straight knows that his best friend is is gay, and you know, he's still his best friend. And he's having a birthday party and he, the friend says to him, I'm not coming in because I, you promised to tell your parents that I was gay and you, you haven't done it. And I've just – this is it. You know, This is my ultimate. I'm not coming in. And the um, – so he just stands outside and finally the father comes out and says, what are you doing outside? And he said, I'm not coming in because your well, – I've forgotten what his name is, but your son won't tell you that I'm gay. And the man says – looks at him and says, you know – Islam means a lot to me, and when I go to mosque on Fridays, it's one of the great moments in my week. He said, but I don't understand everything. And one thing I do understand is that you're my son's best friend. So please come in. People do that all the time. Right. Right. They, he didn't say it's okay. He didn't say Islam is wrong. 
He didn't say Islam permits this. He said, you're my son's best friend mm -hmm. and you, you have to come to the party. So I think – and so that's the that's – the, in, in a way that's about being – you know, a lot of politicians would say, well, that's just a perfect example of arguing for unprincipled behavior. Right. Relativism. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Relativism. Everything's OK. Everything's okay, but he's not a relativist. No. He's he's saying I think you know my my religion teaches that this is wrong, and I'm going to have to deal with that somehow. But I'm not going to deal with it by being um, unkind to my son's best friend. And that kind of dealing with com the complexity of life and the complexity of the world, given that we have these differences, is something that human beings, at their best, are very good at. Unfortunately, hmm. you can get people to sort of hunker down and um, allow one of their identities to trump everything else about them, including their natural human kindness. Hmm. And, then, and then they're bad at it. Then they, then they, you know, then they start beating people up and, uh, and, and assaulting people and excluding people and, and being unpleasant to people. Um, my own sort of way of... Um, dealing with the fact that there are people out there who just don't seem to grasp what seems to me evident about moral life <laughs> uh, is to begin with a, another philosophical idea, an idea that I tried to make something of in the book on cosmopolitanism, which is what philosophers would call an epistemological idea. Uh, it's an idea of fallibilism. I think that yes. it's terribly important to yeah. acknowledge that it's hard to figure out what the right answer is and that even if you're sure you've got it, uh, you should be open to the possibility that it's going to turn out that you're wrong. So if it's hard to find out what the truth is, it's not surprising, even if I'm right about something, that there are other people out there who are wrong. And furthermore, it's not – I should expect and assume that sometime I'm going to find out that some of the things I'm now convinced of – are not right. I will. I will learn new things all the time. I, my learning isn't over, and my learning isn't over both because I believe you know things that are turn out are going to turn out to be wrong, and because also because there are things that I haven't thought about yet, right. <laughs> where I need to make discoveries. And conversation is one great source of help in both of those things. In conversation, especially so-called across difference, you get offered possibilities that you haven't even thought about. Right. You get, you get new things. It's so, and also yeah. you get help with the things that you're already thinking about. I mean, I mm – -hmm. look, I, as I said, I told you what I think about, about uh, abortion rights. But um, I have come after sort of listening over the years to all kinds of uh, uh, arguments to think that it's less obvious than I thought it was at the start what the right answer is. And that I have – I think I have more of an appreciation of the sorts of things that would lead people to be to various degrees pro-choice than I did at the start. And I think that's good. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not, it's not wishy-washy relativism. I think there's a correct answer. And if I thought that my current answer was the wrong answer, I would change. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's that I recognize the difficulty of finding the answer. You recognize that difficulty in yourself and in others. In myself. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I, have, I can respect people who have a different mm -hmm. answer. Uh, and when people have a different answer from me to sort of difficult questions, the, the thing that 
I first want to try and understand is, you know, how they got to where they got to. Uh, because after all, it may turn out that they know something I don't know. Uh, and that I, and it, 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 the, the point about a conversation is you don't go into it expecting to leave it unchanged, but you also don't go into it knowing where the changes are going to come. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, there wouldn't be any point in the conversation. You could already, you know, you could, you could bypass the conversation and just make the changes. Yeah. So I don't know what I'm going to learn when I talk to a person who comes from a different place, uh, either literally or, or metaphorically. And you're saying that's a, um, precisely the right, the only way that, to go into a conversation. And that's like why that. it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go into, if you start talking to somebody the way too many of those charming young uh, Mormons start talking to people, where the only possibility for you of, a, of counting the, the talk as a success is if the other person says, you know, you're right, I'm joining you, uh, then uh, it seems to me uh, that's – whatever that is, that isn't conversation. <laughs> that's, that's something else. So, so this kind of gets uh, – points in a direction that I, I wanted to go with you. I mean, so as, as, as I've been having this um, – Listening and uh, as we've been trying to start this conversation in in our spaces about you know civil conversation and civility and moral imagination and the the question that that remains is you know well how do you do it what are, what are the building blocks of it mm-hmm. and you've, we've been talking about that the whole time but for example this 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 idea that you just uh, talked about about you know about human fallibility you know you 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 mm-hmm. also link that to the to the idea of tolerance which I think. In some ways, the way we've enacted it has been rather hollow and, as you also say, has shut down conversation rather than started it. It's kept mm-hmm. people silent for the sake mm-hmm. of not not uh, offending anyone. Um, but you say that, uh, uh, that, that you're talking about openness to difference, a tolerance that's based not on relativism but on a recognition of human fallibility. I mean, yes. Talk to me about some other – I don't know. I like the word virtues um, – uh, mm-hmm. p- practices, words, and practices that you think can enrich, uh, can be helpful moving forward. I mean, honor is a word that you have devoted a book to, so that might yes. be might be a good place to start too. Okay, I do think that. Um, well, probably the the most helpful way to begin a conversation about honor is just to say a little bit about how I think about it, because it's not a word that right. people have been sort of raised with too much theory about. Do you find much resonance uh, with the word? I think honor may have more resonance in other cultures in Europe, it, which I know better places, perhaps in Africa where you also oh, Yes, no, it does have resonance in, in it has powerful resonance as we uh, as we surely have come to learn in, in the Muslim world and, mm-hmm. in, uh, and, in, in, uh, and in Afghanistan and, and uh, Iran and, and that part of the world, in South Asia uh, but it does in, in Africa too. And, and I think that um, I, there are plenty of places in our culture where talk of honor is extremely resonant. Um, uh, first of all, um, you know, honor is mentioned in the Ten Commandments and people who take Christianity right, seriously right. Are, are therefore in the business of honoring their parents. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but uh, And of course, honoring God. Uh, but but our military culture, which is a significant yes. part of our society, is uh, especially, I would say, the culture of officers, 
is profoundly shaped by a conviction that honor is an important uh, idiom for talking about what matters. So I, I, it's, it's, it's not equally – and, and every year my university and thousands of others give honorary degrees. Mm-hmm. We, honor, we honor philanthropists and scholars and mm-hmm. leaders in our community and, and donors, alumni for achievements. So you know, we actually do a lot of honoring – uh, even in our society, which we think of as kind of uh, you know modern and therefore supposedly beyond honor, um, but I think that the, and the key to to honor, it seems to me, is the recognition that at the heart of honor is the idea that um, there are things about people that entitle them to to respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one kind of thing that entitles you to respect is significant philanthropic work, right? That's why we give honorary degrees to philanthropists. Uh, another thing that entitles you to significant respect is is going out of the way to practice your profession above and beyond its normal standards. So we honor nurses who are uh, who are more giving than mm-hmm. their profession requires, and so on. So. At the heart of honor, then, is is the idea that uh, it's that we owe certain people respect, and there are roughly sort of two main kinds of honor. There's there's the sort of competitive honor which honorary degrees represent, where you give people respect for being outstanding, and then there's the kind of honor that's represented by our talk of human dignity, where you don't have to be outstanding. You just have to be some, a human being with the human capacities for suffering and for meaning and for all the things that you know, make human beings centers of moral concern. And so there's, there's a kind of competitive honor, which I, I, I'm, I'm, as I say, I, I endorse it. I think that we should honor people who do spectacularly well in, in, in various domains. But there's also another kind of honoring, which is the granting of respect to everybody uh, who uh, – except – I mean you can lose your entitlement to respect if you behave sufficiently badly. Yeah. But, but human beings essentially start out being entitled to respect uh, if, uh, unless they behave appallingly. It seems like and it's so, connected to basic dignity, human dignity. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So human dignity is – in my view, human dignity is a kind of honor. Mm-hmm. Because it's an – because honor at its heart is a system of entitlements to respect. And that fact that we owe respect to other human beings, even the ones we disagree with, even the ones who are wrong about important things, uh, that that thought, you know, must lead you to conduct yourself in a different way from the sort of way in which people who harangue each other on cable television tend to treat each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's an irony, I think, in the fact that um, that, that Glenn Beck uh, wanted to have uh, a uh, celebration on the Mall to recover American honor, and I, I have nothing against that. I mean, I think we did lose a lot of. I mean, I disagree with him about where we lost our honor, but but that we lost honor in Abu Ghraib, that we lost honor in Guantanamo, that we lost honor when we uh, failed to live up to our moral obligations not to torture people, I believe. And we need to struggle as a nation 
to recover our honour. And, and I think in order to do that, we have to acknowledge that we that this wrong was done in our name, repudiate it, and commit ourselves to not doing it again. So I think that's a good example of a case where a concern for honour, in this case the honour of our country, uh, is, some, is a powerful political mobiliser in the right direction. You know, one place this led me to go in my own thinking was I've um, I've spent a lot of time thinking and talking to other people about fear as a factor in our public life. Mm-hmm, right? I mean, mm-hmm. fear as an animator of some of this rancor and the depth of division and the caricatures and, and fear of just the fact that we live in a very unsettling chi- time full of lots of change mm-hmm. and uh, that 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 a natural reaction of human beings is, is to become fearful and that some of these issues, which I think you've also noted, like these issues around sexuality, I mean, they are big, important, frightening issues mm-hmm. for different people in different ways. But, you know, you also, to talk about honor, in some place you talk about how the, you know, the, 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 the opposite of feeling honored is feeling humiliated. Mm-hmm. And... You know that also strikes me as a dynamic in in this culture that that is also there in 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 some of this oh. digging into the trenches, right? I mean, not Absolutely. and not even necessarily feeling humiliated by one's opponents, but feeling humiliated by what's happening in the economy, right? But it seems yes. to me a very powerful thing to to try to take seriously. Well, at the uh, I mean, just to underline the centrality of the moral centrality of, of, of humiliation. I think that if you ask people who've been tortured what stays with them, it's not actually the physical memory of pain so much as the sense of humiliation. Mm. It's the sense that what you're doing in torture is humiliating people. Um, and that's why it's so terrible, because humiliation is a terrible thing to impose upon people. And it matters that people uh, should uh, – John Rawls, the great uh, modern American philosopher, spoke about what he called the social bases of self-respect. And he said that one of the things in a just society was that everybody was – guaranteed the social background, the social materials, the resources, the education, the rights to uh, sustain their sense of their own worthiness to be respected, mm-hmm. that, which gives you a sense of self-respect and also leads you to expect the respect of others. And if we, we live in a society where uh, unless you have the kind of disability that makes you unable to work and to need, um, therefore, to be to, to be on welfare, uh, you it's hard to maintain self-respect if you don't have a job. Yeah, it's hard to maintain self-respect if you can't hold birthday parties for your children. These are small things, I suppose, mm-hmm. but they're part of what goes together to make a life worth living. And if you deny people the social bases of self, if you deny them the jobs, uh, uh, the, the possibility of, of meaningful work, uh, the possibility of political participation, the possibility of uh, moving through public space as a person treated with equal dignity, which is what is denied to many, unfortunately, to many women in many places in the world, and so on. If you deny that, then you're denying something that you know, you're denying them the possibility of the kind of 
decent human life that you know is the object of the exercise. That's that's what we're here for. We're here to live a life of meaning and dignity. So humiliation, whether the intentional humiliation of people, which is, I have to say, that is part of what's least attractive to me about the world of. Uh, of cable, sort of yes. you know, the nasty side of cable is these people set out to humiliate other people. What a what a ghastly thing to be doing, uh, to to set out to humiliate other people. But unfortunately, it, it, we we couldn't remove the humiliation in the world simply by getting rid of the intentional humiliation because people feel lose the basis of self-respect when they lose their job and they can't get another one and they feel that the skills they have and their their willingness to work is sort of being ignored uh, in the social reality they live in. We face this, of course, at the moment as a society, but imagine how... Imagine what it's like to be a young Egyptian, an educated young Egyptian, where you know we think 10% unemployment is terrible. Yeah. We're talking about a population of young people who have ambitions for themselves, who want to make families, live lives, participate in the life of their community, who can't get, you know, half of them can't get jobs. Right, at all, uh, ever. So, at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they, they're looking mm-hmm. into a future with, in which that's not there. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're there. And, uh, you know, so it's hugely important. And, and we can help with this, actually, because I think one, at the moment, I'm glad to say, Many people in the Muslim in, in the Arab world are focused on dealing with their own the problems that they've made for them themselves. Where they're trying to solve problems for themselves, and that's terrific. But one of the background anxieties that many people in the in the Arab world, in particular, and in the Muslim world more generally, feel is that we don't respect them. Mm-hmm. If you ask if you ask what the biggest basis in the world is of some of the anti-Western resentment, I think it is a sense that the West doesn't respect uh, Muslims. Now, you know, the first thing you need to say to someone who thinks that is, please don't lump us all together. Mm-hmm. Right? I, of course, I know people who don't respect Islam. There are people in this country who think it's uh, an afternoon's entertainment to burn the Quran. But, I, I, you know, remember that when that happened, hundreds of thousands of Americans were appalled. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans are Muslims and they're going about their business. They're, they, they have their mosques and they're, you know, uh, they're practicing mm-hmm. their Islam. So we need, I think, those of us who are not disrespectful, not contemptuous of uh, the Muslim world need to speak not just for ourselves, but as it were in the voice of our society to say that our society contains people that's, that, that, that has this kind of, Because living with self-respect is part of living a decent human life, and everybody's entitled to that. And I think you know, this is where the uh, diffuse technologies, where the, 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 the possibility of creating alternatives to the most visible public square yeah. actually is a great possibility. Yes. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, people, uh, people in Cairo know that while they were gathering in Revolution Square... Uh, uh, on American Facebook, there were people gathering in solidarity in virtually in a virtual mm-hmm. square. Right? They know that some of us were sort of thinking about them and manifested it by this elementary uh, use of the technology. That's very important because it means they know that uh, that uh, Glenn Beck doesn't speak for all of us. 
So one of the most interesting things about your what you lay out in, in your book about honor is um, very clearly that, uh, let me just look at my, um, you know, first of all, that, that, that change, I mean, I think the subtitle is how, is it how moral revolutions happen? Mm-hmm. And that that while you are a person of ideas, you are a philosopher. That 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 change, um, when it happens, is experiential. Um, that it yes. that it comes through practices, not ideas. Not that ideas don't have a place, mm-hmm. um, but that but they're not mobilizing in the same way. That that when it really tips, um, it is mm-hmm. that experiential piece of it. So I want to just, you know, again thinking about. Um, and moving back, the lens back to American public life right now, which, you know, and I want, I want to say also, I think that what happens, how we learn to move into this next phase of our life together also is relevant in terms of demonstrating something to people in new and emerging democracies, right? So mm-hmm. this, this mm-hmm. isn't just about us. Um, no. You wrote, um, for example, and just want to kind of pick this apart, you know, to change social, social practices you were talking about. First, begin with a dialogue of mutual respect, free of self-congratulation. Tell me what you mean by that, free of self-congratulation. Well, I think that too often when people come to us to ask us to help with a problem in another part of the world, they point to some terrible thing that is happening. Uh, they do so in a way that makes us feel terrific because uh, we're, it's not a terrible thing that we're doing. <laughs> you know, So yeah. it makes us feel superior. And then they want us to give money so that they can go and campaign against it. Now, this seems to me sort of, as it were, all the wrong way to start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, you, what you need to start with is being invited to care about and respect people in a place. And then once you're engaged with them, you... And and you have a, a dialogue of mutual respect going on. Then issues arise about uh, about the things you disagree about, and you say you can say to people with whom you have now a relationship, um, you know, I don't think that what you're doing with your daughters is really right. Explain to me how you justify it. Explain to me. Let me understand. Let me try and understand. You know what's going on here, and. Um, not because um, I'm morally superior to you, but because I'm uh, engaged with you in a respectful conversation as an equal. And the way I manifest my respect for people that I disagree with is by, as civilly as I can, explaining to them why I disagree. If you do that, um, first of all, you learn that the thing that you're against is often different from what you thought it was. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, They weren't actually doing what you thought they were doing. They were doing something else because they were thinking about it in a different way from the way you thought about it. And therefore, you come to a a more appropriate appreciation of what it is you're evaluating. Now, that isn't necessarily going to change your mind about what you think, what you evaluate, but at least you're now making the right judgment. And... It just turns out that if you do that and if you ha- do it in a conversation, the next thing that happens is they're talking to you. Well, you do things that they think are wrong. Right. Uh, and um, if, you, if you conduct yourself in a way that manifests genuine sense of moral equality, you'll, they'll tell you that. But they may not tell you to begin with because they may not trust you to be serious about treating them as respectful 
respectfully. Um, but if you know, if you start talking about what they do in their families, they'll start telling you things about what you do, and. Again, that gives you an opportunity to manifest respect by giving an account of yourself. And it's likely to be that if you do this long enough, you'll end up being able to see that there's another way of thinking about what you do and that you might even want to change some of what you do uh, as a result of these conversations. I'll give you an example. You go into West African society to talk about uh, female genital cutting. If you have wide-ranging conversations about health and human rights in that, in that context, one of the things that I can guarantee you will come up is a sense that many people in many different West African societies have about the United States, which is that we don't really know how to handle relationships between uh, people towards the end of their lives and younger people. Hmm. Um, they feel that the way they help uh, when they have the resources, but that they help older people to deal with the end of life and to continue to live as respectful members of the community after they're able to be fully productive physically is better than the way we do it. And I have to say, <laughs> having watched my mother die a, um, uh, I think, a, um, you know, a good death mm -hmm. uh, in Ghana, I'm inclined to agree. My English mother... Uh, died, I think, probably better than she could have died in England, in part mm. because of the kind of society she was living in. So, this now, if you say, but like, why are you talking about that? This is a conversation about <laughs> women's rights. You're not conversational. Um, <laughs> you're, 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 you're sort of turning it into a preaching session. If it isn't a preaching session, if it is a conversation, we have things to learn from one another. And if you can show that you can learn, that makes it uh, that that means it's not humiliating for the other person to think that they can right. change their mind. So I think that's the sort of thing I have in mind. And and there are people who've actually, you know, Tostan, this wonderful organisation in Senegal, which is started by a woman from Minnesota, I believe, um, has been hugely successful in getting thousands and thousands of villages to to. Uh, announced that they're going to stop female genital cutting. Oh, I've met her, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And it begins with, she didn't come in and sort of wag her finger at them. Right, it's a listening. She, she, she listened mm -hmm. and she told them what their rights were under Senegalese law and under international law. She told them how sort of human rights concepts work. She told them, she offered them uh, uh, seminars on health. Mm -hmm. And they came to the conclusion that it wasn't good for their daughters to do this thing. She didn't even have to tell them. Right. Um, and, and if she'd come in stamping her foot and telling them they were bad people, they'd still be doing it, I believe. So, you know, you have looked at um, examples in history in different places of profound change that happened, foot-binding in China, sort of practices that... Mm -hmm had been a norm that ended dueling uh, slavery in the British Empire. Um, and I think another thing that you point out that's very interesting is that, let me see, this is what you wrote, um, to end one practice as the anti-footbinding campaigners in China grasped, you need to start another. Mm -hmm. um, so if we, I don't know, let's say if you'd written a fifth chapter in that book, or a fifth example, mm -hmm. if, if, mm -hmm. if, if, if we looked at uh, 
the decline of American political discourse as as it as it as a moral problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what practices might you propose, or how would you think about the starting of new practices? I don't know. Well, I do think that um, some some years ago, people had the idea of starting sort of neighborhood conversations all around the country in which people came together who were not all of the same political persuasion. Yeah. And, and that didn't take off. But it's a good idea. And um, I think that if I were in more regular conversation with uh, I'm relatively liberal, so with with uh, more conservative people, then I think I would be better placed to understand what I should say to my congressman, hmm. who's a Democrat, about you know when he should and when he shouldn't, um, as it were, fight the other side, when he should work together and when he should just continue to hold his own. And I think... Um, so we need to to practice it ourselves, but I think also we need to kind of model it. Um, right. This there, there was a there was this discussion. You remember uh, around the State of the Union about uh, whether uh, the people of different parties should sit intermingled. Mm. Um, now I think that discussion was conducted as if the issue were about symbolism. And and of course it is partly the state right. is about symbolism, but 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 if they were sitting together more often and talking more often when the cameras were off, uh, um, just about nothing, they, right? About just if they about went to the doctor yeah. and how their children yeah. were doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and socializing more, eat, eating together, um, uh, that would create the thing that some people criticize, which is a kind of a beltway culture, but you need a beltway culture if you're to run a, 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 a multi, a, a bipartisan society, a society that has two large political parties that are roughly equal in scale. Um, you've got to have ways of handling these things. My my um, my father's mother was a British politician and a member of a member of actually he was a socialist who was a member of Churchill's wartime cabinet. Because during the war, they all got together. And um, so – but the point about this was uh, – I was going to make a point about him, which is that he was – so he was the leftmost member of his party, of his family. But he had a brother who was one of Churchill's best friends who was, you know, sort of normal English conservative. And he had another brother who was, as I like to say, practically a fascist. He was very, very right <laughs> very right wing. Now, my, they disagreed with each other, but they were brothers right. and they were able and, – and it used to be that you could and, – and some of my grandfather's friends were uh, not uh, in his own political party. They were people he knew and liked, he'd known all his life, family, friends and so on, who – with whom he disagreed and he still remained friends with them. And, and in the Houses of Parliament, uh, people of very different uh, political views could nevertheless – socialize together uh, and so on it wouldn't and wouldn't regard it as a disaster if one of their sons married uh, the daughter of somebody from a different party they wouldn't regard it as a kind of betrayal because there was a political class 
Uh, I think you need a political class. It doesn't need it, – it's bad if it gets isolated from the rest of us. But you need a sense that, look, we have different views, but we are – our job is to work together hmm. to make the, con- the country work. And we shouldn't require – I shouldn't require my – he probably won't forgive me for saying this, but my rather liberal congressman, (laughs) we I shouldn't require him to be, which he isn't, but uh, but, but, I mean, I shouldn't require him to perform a kind of pantomime of hostility Hmm. to to Republicans with whom he and I disagree. I should require him rather to stick for our principles and to negotiate around them and to see what can be done with the business of the republic. One reason why people do what you know Sarah Palin is now doing, and uh, if I were a Republican, I would give you my favorite example of a Democrat who does this. It, one reason they're doing that is because it works, because people support it, and uh, we have to learn mm, that in supporting that, in supporting mm. that, we're not helping us. We're not even helping the cause that they're articulating. Mm. What are the chances of Sarah Palin being able to achieve things in our politics if she simply generates massive negatives from uh, everybody who's, uh, you know, to the left of of center? Mm. Uh, She has a much better chance of advancing an agenda, even the very agenda that she actually has, uh, if she's seen as a reasonable person by people who disagree with her. So you don't get what you want, it seems to me. You won't get what you want if you uh, encourage the people that represent you to behave like these sort of crazy people. So I think we need to – but we'll only learn that if we ourselves live lives in which we interact with people that we disagree with and nevertheless get along with them fine. One, One of the great lessons of my childhood, which I'm extremely grateful for, was that when my grandmother got older, she moved from the house, the bigger house that she lived in, into the house, little cottage next door, and she sold the big house to a man who was a member of the British Parliament and was very right wing, hmm. and uh, but extremely nice, <laughs> and and very nice to me. <laughs> Nevertheless, and I, and I was a young, you know, I I was I had a subscription to this the Soviet news and the Peking Review. I was a young lefty. Um, he was incredibly nice to me and and he was not only nice to me he was willing to talk to me about politics and he was willing to let an 18 year old or whatever I was uh, young man talk to him about politics and say things that he obviously thought were you know and he told me what he thought he was frank I mean he didn't pretend to believe things that he didn't believe I learned a lot I learned that I couldn't find anything that I had to admit that I liked this guy (laughs) even though I thought he was wrong about everything um, and I, and that was luck. It was luck that I had that experience when I was young. Um, I, but I think that we could try and arrange our world so that more of us had that sort of experience more of the time. And especially we could try and arrange Washington hmm. so that people could could behave in the way that I'm told senators used to behave. Right. I know. That, we all hear this now. You know, here's something uh, you wrote that I, I also found just great, um, kind of inspiring to think about, to shift one's imagination. You said, often enough, as Faust said in the beginning, in the beginning is the deed. Practices mm-hmm. and not principles are what enable us to live together in peace. 
conversations yes. across boundaries of identity, whether national, religious, or something else, begin with the sort of imaginative engagement you get when you read a novel or watch a movie or attend to a work of art that speaks from someplace other than your own. That's a more exciting image than forming earnest <laughs> discussion groups yes, in neighborhoods yes. somehow. It is, and I think mm-hmm. that that we uh, we have the opportunity. I mean, the arts, you know, are a big uh, sphere of, of of our lives in which it's possible to engage with uh, these things. I always urge students uh, to make sure that they see if they watch movies to make sure that at least one of the movies they watch a month is has got subtitles. So then they're, they're mm. looking at a movie mm. from some place where they don't speak English. Um, uh, or where they speak a kind of English that's so difficult for them to understand that they have to have subtitles. Um, you know, we we can uh, – literal conversation is one thing, but I feel more in touch with, say, the situation in Iraq than I otherwise would because I've seen a few Iraqi movies, mm. not movies about politics or about war – though I have seen some of those, but just movies about life, Hmm. Uh, movies in which I see what it was like to live in the Kurdish part of Iraq under Saddam Hussein, or a movie like, um, you know, a movie like Osama, the one about the young woman in in Afghanistan, uh, where um, the reality of what the Taliban did to women uh, is made concrete for me by embodying it in the lives of this woman and her daughter and so on. And I think that so uh I you know I I as I say I wish I spent more of my time around people that disagreed with me more about, <laughs> about <laughs> politics but I do at least try to read and understand mm-hmm. uh, uh uh and to watch right. um people making arguments that I know I'm not going to like or agree with. And, but as I say, I think I think movies, um, the visual arts, uh, literature is another good way of opening yourself up. Uh, if you're, if you, if you, it's more interesting than. I mean, the trouble is when people get together at dinner parties, which you know, where the point is that we're not all, you know, some of us are Republicans, some of us are Democrats. You're gonna either you're going to talk about politics, and, and it's going to be kind of boring, probably. Right. Uh, or you're going to spend the whole evening not talking about politics, mm-hmm. which will be even more boring because you think, well, you know, what the, the object of the exercise was to bring together Republicans and Democrats. It's kind of strange that we, we are uh, refusing to talk to each other about the thing that, that defines uh, how we got to be selected. But uh, uh, so it's hard and it's unnatural uh, to do it that way. So there are other ways of doing it. And I think one of them is opening yourself up to to the so the sort of to the, to the comedy and the movies and the fiction that comes from uh, societies and and um, attitudes that are different from your own, um, right? But we we, we we need to do that, I think, we, and and that is easier than the business of actually organizing <laughs> mixed group. Yes. I, you know, years ago when I was living in in Boston. Um, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to forget her name. The the woman who who uh, shaped American, reshaped American cooking, Julia Child. Oh yes, mm-hmm. uh, Julia. Child, this I forget when this was, but say this was sort of ten, fifteen years ago. She was older at that point, and her husband had died. But uh, she was worried about um, the state of sort of 
race discussions mm. in society. So what did she do, being Julia Child? She summoned you know, a group of people to come and have dinner and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at her house in, in Cambridge. And so, you know, it's kind of a mixed race group around the table. Um, that's, uh, you know, most of us can't do that. You can't just summon but people. But we might do, be able to do our <laughs> but, version of that. But we could do we could do more of that, and uh, and I think that doing that. Look, um, one of the great privileges of a free society is that you don't have to spend all your time thinking about the government. <laughs> yeah. If if you're in if if you live in a if you live in a dictatorship if you live in Egypt you spend an awful lot of time thinking about the government and. Furthermore, you spend a lot of time thinking about the government and nothing comes of your thinking because you have no impact on it. Here, because we're living in a free society, a lot of what we do we can just do without thinking about you know, whether the government cares about what we're doing. And so it can e- you can easily have a life in which you do almost nothing except vote to participate in the life of the republic. Mm-hmm. These are and, – and I understand why that is and – um, but if we were to spend more of our time on the life of the republic, not directly, you know, by focusing on having more and more political conversations in town halls and so on, but by getting together with people in our communities and talking about these things in a way that um, brought us to a, a deeper understanding of each other. Uh, that that would be well worth it as, as human and, beings, as much as as yeah. people who are and, different uh, and, positions. Mm-hmm. And the republic would work better mm. because because you would be thinking about Joe and Mary and not about conservative Republicans right. or liberal Democrats. Right. And you would you would know that you knew some awfully nice people who were, for some bizarre reason. <laughs> not convinced that you were completely correct about every political question. Right. We just have a couple more minutes, and I, 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 I'm just going to kind of ask two questions at once, and you can respond as you want. One is, I, I just, I, I was just thinking as I was preparing. I mean, I do, I do interview philosophers, but I, I think it's an interesting question about the role of philosophy, especially in a culture like 21st century America, or America in general, which it has a real anti-intellectual bent, right, in its in places, mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. And I'm really aware of that in our current divides. And I, and I want to also say on both sides of them. I mean, I think uh, on, on one side of it, there's kind of a, that American pride in not being elite. But mm-hmm. I also think that a lot of the more um, intellectual elite conversation about that other side is, in fact, quite misinformed, even though it may be articulated yes. in very intelligent ways. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that's on my mind about how you think about philosophy and your role, the role of ideas. And, and then mm-hmm. I'm also curious about um, how neuroscience is kind of m- merging mm-hmm. with philosophy. There's this new symbiosis. And mm-hmm. so, for example, in, in your idea of cosmopolitanism, you talk about this basic human fact of our obligations to each other's. And then I think science is yielding some interesting things. You know, Nicholas Kristof uses this in his journalism, where we're really learning, though, that that we in fact can only connect can connect to particular hum, human stories differently than we can, in fact, to connect to a universal idea of our obligation Absent to principles. others. Yeah. So yes. So just as just our last few minutes, um, any of that that strikes you well, as worth commenting on? So 
I think it's right to observe the growth or the persistence of a kind of anti-intellectualist, intellectual strain in America. But anti-intellectualism is not necessarily hostility to ideas. Mm. It's hostility to intellectuals. <laughs> and, and intellectuals, uh, dare I say it, sometimes earn the hostility of other people, in part by uh, by condescension. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody likes being condescended to. It's one of the fundamental reasons why respectful conversation is a good idea. Uh, it's because if you... Are, the, alter, the only alternative to respectful conversation is, is sort of condescending conversation. And in a condescending conversation, the other person is going to stop listening pretty fast and they're just going to start getting increasingly resentful. Yeah. Uh, and they're entitled to be resentful because you're not entitled to condescend to people. No. And there's that humiliation uh, factor too, that feeling. And you're, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not so, being honored. Right. So, you, you, so we need to and, – and I do think that uh, an awful lot of philosophical work in ethics, for example, um, isn't framed in a way that's, uh, that, that uh, invites people who don't have uh, five years of – you know, postgraduate education to to uh, to try and to sort of try and follow it. I mean, I find it hard to follow, and I do have five years of postgraduate <laughs> education. Now, I am not against people working on hard questions, and working on hard questions requires training and effort, and not everybody can follow it. But I am against people not trying when they've discovered something after hard effort to figure out how to explain it clearly if it's important for other people. Some of it isn't important for other people. But some of the things that we think about are important for other people. And I think we should put a lot of our not, – not everybody in the, in the profession, but some of us need to spend time thinking, how can I help our society with its thinking given that um, reflection on how to think well is my mm. academic business? Um, and people can contribute to our understanding of what it is to think correctly without helping anyone to think correctly. And so we need some of us to try and provide people with the tools that we've discovered that make them actually usable. Right. And, and the thing that you, you mentioned from Christoph, which is this increasing recognition among psychologists that people's capacity for uh, moral engagement with others works narratively and particularly and not in through principle right, and through a abstraction. story, a, a picture. Mm -hmm. Right. That means we have to figure out how to communicate the important ideas narratively. We have to figure out how to tell the stories that illuminate the ideas. And, and that's why I try, I mean, most of my uh, recent writing, whatever it's about, actually turns out to have a lot of stories in it. Yes. And the stories are meant to help provide people with tools. My own view is my task isn't to tell people what to think about anything. My task, my professional task, is to try and provide people with the tools so they can think about things, so they can uh, think creatively and productively about the difficult questions that we face. And if our society is equipped with a, a richer vocabulary of uh, concepts and ideas and arguments and stories for thinking about its uh, problems, then we will be able to think about them better. And, and that's why, you know, uh, 
I think Nick Christoph's a very good example. This is someone who tells, uh, in, who, both in his column, but also in in in, in the books that he's published, mm-hmm. tells stories about people around the world so that we can engage, we can feel um, uh, the, the the importance of the questions that they're dealing with, uh, and think about whether there's something that we want to contribute. Uh, to solving the the world's many problems. And do you think, I mean, going back to your um, rich definition of conversation as habits of coexistence, of Mm -hmm. practice, um, so do do, do you believe that when we can think more richly, when we, you know, when we have use these tools, better tools of argument and story, that, that that then translates into a different kind of life together? Well, I think it does. One of the, one of the reasons why, it, for, at least for someone like me, it can be a pleasure to live in a community of... I, I live partly in Princeton, and it's an academic community, though lots of the people I know aren't academics, and partly in New York, where through my partner, my friends are sort of in the sort of New York literary community. Part of the reason why those are fun places to live and hang out and go to parties and dinner parties and so on and, and dance and get drunk and all those things uh, is because it's because uh, these are the people who are bubbling over with useful ideas for thinking about everything from how to raise their kids to you know the the, the, the common life of the republic that we are all in charge of together in this democracy in this democracy mm-hmm. and uh, so they would all claim surely if you ask them if they didn't think it was pretentious, that their intellectual lives was part were part of what made their lives interesting and uh, uh, and meaningful. Now, it's a terrible mistake, one to which intellectuals are prone. Aristotle made this mistake to think that the only decent life, because we love lives, our lives, that the only decent life is the life of an intellectual. Mm-hmm. I do, Aristotle thought something like that, or he thought it was the best life. I do not think that at all. Some of the people who have lived the most satisfactory, wonderful lives I know were not intellectuals at all. And um, and that's I, I think it's a very important point, especially a point to insist on when you're talking to intellectuals. Mm-hmm. But but even people who are who are not whose lives aren't organized around the intellectual's project of trying to understand some domain deeply and thoroughly um, even though even people aren't doing that uh, can make use of some of the things that intellectuals come up with in their in their search and one of the ways in which those ideas get into a wider culture is I believe through the creative work of of um, uh, of our you know, of our great writers mm-hmm. think about Jonathan Jonathan Franzen's last year novel freedom um it's it's a novel of ideas it's full of ideas about and, and it deals with questions about the environment and so on which are which have been worked on very thoroughly by scholars right right but it makes them it connects them with narratively with the lives of a particular imaginary group of people in a way that you know makes it possible for you to think about them without becoming uh, an, an eco- ecologist or uh, an evolutionary biologist or whatever, and I think that that's uh, one of the great services of of, uh, of of the literary of the literature is to um, be in dialogue with the 
parts of the intellectual uh, world that are not so easy of access without special training and bring some of those ideas into the into a more general conversation. Okay. Well, this has been a great conversation. I've really, really kept you a long time, but I'm very grateful and uh, it's fantastic. So thank well, you so thank much. Thank you so much for asking me. It's very been enjoyable to talk to you. Great. And we will let you know what's happening with this when it's going to be on the air. I, we're uh, it's a few weeks away. Um, we're, okay. Uh, but you'll know, and we may have some follow-up questions. And uh, just sure. thank you so much. Well, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.